This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. Today, we continue our celebration of the 50th anniversary of hip-hop with Amir Questlove Thompson, drummer and co-founder of The Roots. He was born in 1971 and says he and hip-hop grew up together. Probably the most seminal moment for me is Public Enemies. Uh, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. When that album came out in 1988, that was a Sgt. Pepper's moment. We'll also hear from Public Enemies' Chuck D., he talks about the song Fight the Power and the powers they were fighting. The powers of a lot of different things, economics, education, enforcement, you know, the powers that keep the black community remaining in the plantation state that it remains in. And we'll listen back to a conversation with Sean Diddy Combs, a.k.a. Puff Daddy or P. Diddy. He made his name or names in the hip-hop world as a record producer and rapper. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at stearnsandfoster.com. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. In celebration of hip-hop's 50th anniversary, we're featuring interviews from our archive with some of the genre's groundbreaking performers. Our guest today is Quest Love, Amir Thompson. He co-founded the hip-hop group The Roots, which is also the house band for The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon. Quest Love has described The Roots as the last hip-hop group, the last of a dying breed in an era of solo acts. Quest Love grew up in West Philadelphia, but spent a lot of time on the road traveling with his father, the late Lee Andrews, of the doo-wop group Lee Andrews and the Hearts. Lee Andrews' record collection gave Questlove a head start and becoming an encyclopedia of music references. We'll start with Terry's 2013 interview with Questlove. He had just published his memoir, Mo Meta Blues. Amir, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's great to have you back. Growing up with, with rap music and hip-hop, did you ever worry that the music you loved wouldn't have use for a drummer like you because of drum machines, because of sampling, Never. I break down hip-hop in sort of like five-year brackets. The first period of hip-hop, which is uh, 1977 to 1982, was pretty much the idea, at least on wax, uh, because of technology restrictions, the DJ would play the house band of the label that they were signed to. So let's say it's Sugar Hill Records. Grandmaster Flash would play, let's say, uh, a particular break like, let's say, uh, Get Up and Dance or uh, the Apache break, like a, a well-known break that he would spin in clubs, he would play it for the house band, which was Keith LeBlanc on drums and Doug Wimbush on bass, and they would approximate it. So I meant 
the first five years of hip-hop were interpreted by a live band. And so, you know, it didn't sound foreign to me at all. Uh, when drum machines came in, and then when sampling came in, especially in the age of Public Enemies records, uh, pretty much I, I just heard my father's entire record collection uh, <laughs> kind of amalgamated in these, you know, 60-minute cassettes. Like, it, the probably the most seminal moment for me is Public Enemies. Uh, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. When that album came out in 1988, that was a Sgt. Pepper's moment. That was a Never Mind the Bullocks, Here Comes the Sex Pistols moment. And what they did was, I mean, they made a sound collage of of my father's record collection. So it, it, at first it was a name that tune thing. Like, oh, okay, that's David <laughs> Bowie. That's Funkadelic. That's James Brown. Um, but then, you know, it was contextualized in a way that I could relate to. So I, I didn't feel a threat like, oh, I, I don't know how to fit in this world. So your father's era, I mean, there's a lot of showmanship and you talk about like you, you had to get the clothes pressed and use the right colored gels for the lights. Um, the, you know, is this sense of like, you know, performance, showmanship and polish. Um, whereas in, in, in hip hop, I mean, a, a lot of performers are into like, you know, street credibility and right. just like the baggy jeans and the hoodie. And mm -hmm. um, at the same time, though, there's a lot of showmanship. I mean, there's so many hip hop groups that have, um, you know, extravagant stage shows and like dozens of dancers behind them right. and incredible choreography. Well, in but, the beginning, like, mind you, hip hop and I kind of grew up together. So, you know, in 77, I was six years old. So by the time that Rapper's Delight came out, and the first wave of, of groups from that era were getting national exposure, like doing shows, opening for the Commodores and opening for a cameo and that type of stuff that, that I got to witness. You know, I was 10 years old. And those initial acts, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, uh, the Cold Crush Brothers, the Fantastic Romantic, the Treacherous Three, believe it or not, those groups were more derivative of 70 soul groups. So they had the mentality that they had to be like the Temptations, like Blue Magic, like uh, the main ingredient, like a, a, a lot of these uh, 70s groups. So, you know, often in their shows, they too would do singing routines. They do dancing routines. They, they wore flashy outfits. You know, the, the king of the 70s, in my opinion, as far as, taking black theater to to the highest level was was George Clinton mm. and him bringing theater and and that type of visual wonderment to to uh the stage um these groups these initial groups ate it up which is precisely the the reason why Russell Simmons kind of pressed the 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 red panic button and said wait a minute you know this isn't real hip hop like you guys are just Basing your act of of off these seventies groups with these flashy outfits, you guys look like Earth, Wind, and Fire. So the appeal of Run DMC and the idea of the street mentality is sort of you. You have to imagine the same thing that Kurt Cobain did for the grunge movement, kind of uh, wiping the slate clean from hair metal and all the the glam associated with that. That's what Run DMC did to the hip hop that came before it. Russell Simmons said that. Hip-hop should be guys next door. The people that you see on your corner, you should look like them. 
And for all this musicianship, no. It should just be very simple drums and voice. And so that is what ushers in the hip-hop as we know it, as far as street credibility. But before 1982, no. I mean, you know, hip-hop bands felt they had to compete with Earth, Wind & Fire and P-Funk. So where did you see yourself fitting in when you started to perform? I didn't. I was strictly a fan. And it wasn't until De La Soul came aboard. I think before De La Soul, I I saw myself fitting more into the music that that Prince was uh, putting out. Uh, His particular period at that point, you know, he had massive success with Purple Rain. Um, Then he was sort of going through this hippie jazz jazzy period uh in the in the mid 80s that i really uh that i thought he could do no wrong and it really wasn't until de la soul came out de la soul is a, a trio from long island that you know dressed in their parents clothes um they wore their hair in these outlandish styles and they were sampling the music that you would normally ignore like Who's who's going to put Harry Nilsson in, in a hip-hop song? And so once they came out in 1989 with Three Feet High and Rising, then I just knew, like, okay, this is my calling. Like, that, that was my moment. We're listening to Terry's 2013 conversation with Amir Questlove Thompson, drummer and co-founder of The Roots. After a break, we'll hear how a public enemy record led Questlove to quit his job in high school at a 50s-themed burger joint. And we'll listen back to an excerpt of Terry's interview with Public Enemy's frontman Chuck D. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. NPR brings you the updates you need on the day's biggest headlines. The Senate narrowly passed the debt ceiling bill that will prevent the country from defaulting on its loans. Stories from across the world. Knowing how to forage and to live with the land is integral to Amis culture. And down your block. From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. And you can find all of that and more in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. As part of our celebration of the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, we've been digging into our archives. Now we're going to hear an excerpt of Terry's 2021 interview with Amir Questlove Thompson, co-founder of the hip-hop band The Roots. This was recorded when he published a book called Music is History. Your new book is a year-by-year history of songs that have special significance for you since your year of birth in 1971. For 1988, you write about Public Enemy's album It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, which is a pivotal record for a lot of people. I think it was maybe especially pivotal for you, both in terms of like music but also changing the course of your life. Um, 
Yeah. You were working at a, a 50s-themed fast food place in Philly? Big Al's. Where was um, that? It was on uh, Penn's campus on 34th and Walnut. Um, all I can simply say is that I think every teenager has that one moment in his life or her life or their life in which the possibilities of what life has to offer is shown to you and it's up to you to accept that mission or to ignore that mission. Well, how and did that music, how did that album tell you that you you need, needed to change the direction of your life and quit your job at Big Al's? Okay, so what makes Public Enemy um, one of the most important artists ever is the fact that in one fell in one fell swoop, they literally made my dad's entire record collection cool because their uh, pop art Jackson Pollock me- method of of just throwing paint on the wall and and watching these colors blend in with each other. That's how they treated records. So I'm listening to their music and it's like, wait a minute, that's David Bowie. Wait a minute, that's George Clinton. That's James Brown. That's the Commodores. That's the bar case. Like, I'm, you know, I listened to it one down to see, like, how many sound bites could I recognize from my dad's record collection. And once I went over 100, I was like, wait a minute. This is my dad's record collection in one record. It's like a catalog. I can do this. But it was done in a way in which it just didn't sound like, it wasn't like they were mirroring back my, my dad's record collection. It was like they... They filtered it and made it sound urgent. And it was like hearing, I could imagine it was like what it was like to hear the Sex Pistols or Bad Brains uh, or punk music for the first time. Like, I had that for me. And when I got to work, I couldn't stop thinking about that record. And when I went on my lunch break, I never went back. I just sat in the park and listened to that record for four hours. And I said to myself, this is what I want to do with my life. Like, I want to make a kid quit his job and change his life direction. This is what I want to do. Like, not just, like, make music or get a record deal. Like, the way that music made me do those things, this is when I said, this is, this is my direction. Well, you you were already you were already playing with the roots, right? Um, we were a year into it, but you know, I mean, to be honest with you, I you know the roots kind of started with a lie. Like I was just trying to impress a girl that I liked in high school, and I was just thinking off the top of my head, and, uh, yeah, I got a group with that guy, and you know, I ran up to Tariq like, yo, we got a group in case uh, blah blah blah. I ask you, all right? <laughs> and Tariq was like baffled, like, huh? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we got a group. And then that's kind of how it was. Like, we just freestyle at lunch period. Like, we did one talent show, and Boys to Men got all the attention and all the girls crying in the audience and all those things. And, you know, so I, I didn't truly expect. Like, I was going to follow my father's dream. My father wanted me to go to Curtis Music Institute. He, he, in his mind, like, going to classical the classical route and making, you know, you could make a hundred thousand dollars a year playing classical music. You know, that was like respectable. Um, 
which is why uh, people always ask me, is it true you really didn't tell your dad about The Roots until the second album? And it's like, yeah, because, you know, this is you defying your parents, defying, de- defying your, your father. My mother hates when I tell that story because she doesn't want the world to think that she didn't encourage me. She did encourage me, but, you know, to tell your dad you're not going to go to Juilliard and you're going to get a record deal uh, with your high school friend, like, that... That's that isn't the reason why he like you know uh, busted his behind to put you in, in in the best schools to you know to quit to do rap music end quote so but yeah I heard that record and it it just absolutely that was my Moses come to the mountain moment in my life. So which track from It Takes a Nation of Millions best illustrates your father's record collection? Uh, his absolute disdain for the track Rebel Without a Pause. He thought it was a tea kettle going off and just thought it was absolute noise. And, you know, little did he know that was just his beloved James Brown loop uh, being repetitive. And, you know, he couldn't argue with me there. (laughs) Okay, so let's hear it. Yes! The rhythm, the rebel, without a pause, I'm lowering my level. The hard drama, where you never been, I'm in. You want styling? You know it's time again. D, the enemy, telling you to hear it. They praise the music, it's time to play the lyrics. Some say no to the album, the show, bum rush the sound. I made a year ago, I guess you know, you guess I'm just a radical. Not on sabbatical, yes, to make it critical. The only part of your body, chipping part in two. Pass the power on the hour from the rebel to you. Hey, yo, just man, I'm on Never play me on the mix. They just okay me now. No one they grow when the clock in my soul is no sneaking and taking everything now. The brother owns my calling card, recorded and audit. Supporter of Chessamart, loud and proud, kicking live. Next poet supreme, loop for truth, but you for the scheme. Flavor, a rebel in his own mind. Supporter of my rhymes. That was Rebel Without a Pause from Public Enemy's second album, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. Now we're going to hear an excerpt of Terry's 1997 interview with Chuck D., leader of Public Enemy. One of their best-known songs, Fight the Power, was used in Spike Lee's movie, Do the Right Thing. This interview was recorded when Chuck D.'s book, Fight the Power, Rap, Race, and Reality, came out. First, let's listen to Public Enemy's Power to the People. And you thought the beat slowed down, come on! Chuck D, welcome to Fresh Air. Hello, how are you doing? Okay, how are you? I'm all right. 
In your new book, you point out that most rap artists were born after 1967, whereas everyone in your group was born between 1958 and 61. How do you think that makes your point of view different in your lyrics? I just think um, I was able to visualize the whole decade of the 60s, and uh, um, I definitely was a recipient of all the surrounding events. <laughs> so... Uh, when 1986 came around, and it was the 10th year, I guess, of rap music, sort of, or the 7th year of recording, um, the topics were in me, and I didn't have to really go into um, trying to discover them in depth as much as, you know, some of the younger guys. So I went into something that um, that was uh, relative to myself. Public Enemy is also known for its layered sound mixes how did that become a part of the group um the processes of um trying to invent something that was different trying to be um as diverse as possible and coming from a um a background of many different musical styles which we believe that hip-hop is a blend and a hybrid of all kinds of musics and um you know i mean when i was growing up i listened i you know i was more into sports so when i did listen to music and i listened to radio i listened to pretty much am um pop radio so you heard everything from the rolling stones to um to love and spoonful chicago the spinners uh elton john things like that so that combination uh allowed us to come up with um weird layering blends um tell me about creating the image of public enemy, how you dressed, what you did on stage, what the look was on stage. Well, the look was on stage was like kind of represent some of the look on the streets, but what the S1Ws had done um, is, you know, take a combination of a uh, Fruit of Islam and Black Panther Party look with the berets and the black suits. And actually, they had dressed that way to be, you know, they were security for our mobile gigs that we used to have out in Long Island. So when they actually... Um, um, you know, when we actually put this group together, um, myself and Hank Shockley um, thought that they would be a good component to the group to add a look, and that they did. Flavor and myself wore regular street gear. Um, you know, we started out wearing these little clocks because that was a style of high school kids at the time. And then um, Flavor just kept, you know, wearing his clock as the clocks got bigger. I took my clock off after the first year. <laughs> but, you know, the clock signified what time it was, which meant that, you know, you had to know what was happening. So tell me more about the image of having bodyguards on stage. Well, they wasn't really bodyguards. Security the First World signified, well, it had a double meaning. It was like they would call themselves Security the First World because, you know, we felt that we as black people were first world people. And security, you know, spoke up for the fact that our culture, our language... Our whole background and and, not, and known black background was taken away from us, and the security of the first world um, or a symbol to to present the fact that we would never allow it to you know happen again. And um, you know there was also a symbol because in the beginning you know the S1Ws held Uzis, and the Uzi signified you know um, the whole the whole uh, aspect of black culture was stolen with the threat of the gun used by um, the Western Hemisphere and the European civilization. And when they used the gun to abduct us from a land that we pretty much, you know, were peaceful and civil at, 
um, then we used it as a symbol as the S1Ws being the security of the first world, not allowing this to happen again in symbol. Were they real Uzis or fake Uzis? <laughs> Next question. Oh, oh. <laughs> sorry, you can't answer that? <laughs> what, 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 that, that what, why, uh... Why what? Why why can't you answer that? Because <laughs> I choose not to. All right. Um, you know, that's a kind of elaborate uh, metaphor that you're using for the Uzis, but I think the way they've really been seen is uh, these guys are really tough. They've got guns. Uh, they're really macho. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's the way you, you'd see it if you were in the audience as opposed to an elaborate metaphor well, about I, I how think the culture one, was stolen. I and, think number one is that, you know, people were shocked at that time. They had never seen black organizations like this in mm-hmm. in that particular type of way. Mm-hmm. You know, black men in uniforms, they don't look like they, they're in the Army or the U.S. Navy or anything. They just look like they're in it for themselves. Let me play one of the um, better known, uh, you know, one of the most popular uh, raps from Public Enemy, and this is Don't Believe the Hype. Um, just before we hear it, what are some of the things that you were reacting against in this particular well, track? You know, just telling people don't, you know, don't, you know, fall victim to being programmed. Not saying don't believe anything, but challenge information. I mean, even today, we're in just as much of a misinformation age as we are in an information age. So you have to be able to challenge the so-called fact with some situations or some background and research before you actually believe it. In this country right here in the United States, you know, you know, people here are still a headline soaking in audience, so to speak. And instead of the headline, get into the story. Well, let's hear Don't Believe the Hype. This is Public Enemy. My guest is Chuck D., the lead vocalist of the group. Don't, 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 don't. Now here's what I want you all to do for me. Bang! Caught you looking for the same thing. It's a new thing. Check out this. I bring all the rope below the level because I'm living low next to the base. Come on! Turn up the radio. They're claiming I'm a criminal, but now I wonder how, some people never know. The enemy could be the Frank Guardian, I'm now a hooligan, I rock the party and clear all the madness, I'm not a racist, preach to teach the all. Cause don't they never had this? Number one, never wanna run about the gun, I wasn't licensed to have one. The minute they see me, fear me, I'm the epitome, a public enemy, used abuse without clues, I refuse to blow a fuse, they even had it on the news. Don't My guest is Chuck D. of Public Enemy, and he's written a new book called Fight the Power, Rap, Race, and Reality. I'm wondering if the murders of uh, uh, Biggie Smalls and Tupac Shakur had, had a, a, a big personal effect on you, and also if they've had an effect on how on performing and how you see other people. Yeah, um, well, you know, first of all, it's just a ridiculous concept that we had two of the Two of the guys at the top, Mr. One and Mr. One A. And they were both murdered, <laughs> shot. They haven't found the killers. Um, it's just uh, uncanny. It's just unbelievable. And um, and that's no pun intended because that was one of Biggie's um, songs. And right now I'm just confused just by the aspect of that happening. And before they even were shot, 
a lot of people were posturing, you know, uh, reflecting the violence in the hood and, and trying to envelop that philosophy within their act, which kind of like scared off the rest of the female audience in rap music, at least until Puffy Combs actually has brought it back. So Puffy Combs has brought back the female audience, which is a, which is a good thing. And But before then, you know, the live shows disappeared with the disappearing of the female audience as they flocked towards R&B. Do you think that part of the reason why women weren't showing up for rap concerts is the lack of respect they were given in rap music? Um, no, I think um, you had a whole bunch of young crooners come by in such in the you know form of Boys to Men and Jodeci. And uh, I don't care how much a rapper is rapping, um, nothing gets a, a female's attention more than somebody that's on his knees with a rose in his mouth singing love to them. <laughs> Well, it is interesting that rap music has had so little in the way of love ballads. I mean, because usually, like, especially in, in, like, teenage music, there's mm. such a long history of, of the romantic ballad, right. along with the more, People you know, aggressive... Yeah, right. People fall in love every year, you know? Um, Would what, you ever miss that side of, a, of, of performing? What? What's that? The, the romantic side. Did you ever, did you ever did wish that there was that Chuck D had like a kind of romantic ballad side? <laughs> no, no, I can't sing a lick. I can't uh-huh. play instruments. I, uh-huh. You know, I, I yell and I scream. So uh, uh, I, this would be like comparable to, you know, Led Zeppelin. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, with, I guess white males, you know, Led Zeppelin or, or, or metal rock or, or, or straight up rock and roll becomes very energetic and you move around and it becomes athletic. Even Led Zeppelin would have something like Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, and I've had some things that, that, that brought the tempo down every once in a while. But, um, you know, I, no, I, I, can't, if, I believe if you cannot sing, don't even go into that zone. You have people who are natural singers. You have people that have the ability to sing, and um, that's their chunk of entertainment, and I admire them for that. I mean, I'm a big fan of, of Motown in the 60s, so... You know, if I want to hear me something slow jam, I'll, you know, turn on something by Otis Redden. One of your most famous records was used for um, the soundtrack of Do the Right Thing, and that's Fight the Power, mm-hmm. Fight the Powers That Be. Um, what what power? <laughs> Which power, power do you want people the powers, to fight? The, the, well, the powers in the black community is all those that control the black community from the outside going in. The powers of... A lot of different things, economics, education, enforcement, you know, the powers that keep the black community remaining in the plantation state that it remains in. So uh, (laughs) with that in mind, you want to fight the powers to get that foot off your neck. And that's just your human right to get a foot off your neck. What influence do you hope your lyrics have had on your listeners? To be able to look at information clearly, uh, disseminate it, and then use it for their own good. One last question. What have you been listening to now, musically? Me? Yeah. I bought this Rhino box set of 100 records um, from the 60s. The, the soul, soul yeah, music box? Yeah, Beg, Scream, Shout. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Bought that. Of course, Hendrix stays in my collection. Uh-huh. Um, the first Funkadelic album, Free Your Mind. Um, um, as for Busta Rhymes, um, OC, <laughs> yeah, um, OC has the latest album. There's a, a good young rapper that I like. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reading uh, Sweet Soul music. Um, Peter Garalnik's book. Yeah, Peter Garalnik's book. Um, I just bought Gladys Knight's book yesterday. Uh huh. 
uh, Al, you know, the uh, high high record story, which is three three sets of uh, CDs on on everything out of high records in Memphis. Um, that's that's you know heavily and also making the next record. So you know, hearing uh, also uh, Traffic's um, first couple albums, another group Traffic, Stevie mm-hmm, Winwood, mm-hmm. and all of them. Well, we're out of time. Chuck D., I want to thank you very much for talking with us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Terry. Chuck D. is co-founder of Public Enemy. He spoke with Terry Gross in 1997. Coming up, we'll hear a 2008 interview from record producer, rapper, and actor Sean Combs, a.k.a. Puff Daddy or P. Diddy. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Hey, it's Aisha Roscoe from NPR's Up First podcast. I'm one of thousands of NPR Network voices coming to you from over 200 local newsrooms across the country. We bring all Americans closer together through free and independent journalism, music, politics, culture, and so much more. The NPR Network. What you hear changes everything. Learn more at npr.org network. These days, it can feel like the news is fighting for your attention wherever you turn, but staying informed shouldn't be a battle. Everything you need to navigate the stories that matter to you is at your fingertips. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download the NPR app in your app store today, or you can go to npr.org slash The next interview in our hip-hop history series is with Sean P. Diddy Combs, a.k.a. Puff Daddy. He's one of the most successful and wealthiest people to have come out of the hip-hop world. He started as a record producer, working with performers like Mary J. Blige and Biggie Smalls. In 1991, he started his own label, Bad Boy Records. Several years after producing hits for others, he started recording his own music. He also has a successful clothing design company, Sean John, his own fragrance, and he acts. He starred in the 2004 Broadway revival, A Raisin in the Sun. He has a new album coming out on September 15th, his first in 17 years. Sean Diddy Combs spoke to Terry Gross in 2008. Sean Combs, welcome to Fresh Air. Um, Thank you for having me. Now, correct me if I get any facts wrong here, but you grew up in a Harlem housing project until you were about 12, and then you and your mother moved to Mount Vernon, which is just north of New York City. Um, compare the two neighborhoods for us. Oh, um, see, I lived in Harlem, so it wasn't, it was, you know, it, it was a, it's a whole different type of inner city feeling. Um, it's, it's like, it, it helped make me what I was today. It's, it's so soulful. Um, it, it's just, it's a place that's like, you know, rich in culture and soul and, um, you know, um, fashion and music. Um, you know, everybody is trying to be the best dress, dress um, person in the neighborhood. Um, people dance in the streets. Um, you, 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 like, like growing up, you, you, uh, in some places, 
you know, like in the suburbs, kids grow up playing Little League and, you know, in sports. And um, in Harlem, you grow up dancing and, and singing and and um, in the world of fashion, just trying to, you know, put your outfits together. And so it kind of shaped and molded me for my future. And um, the, and the difference of the suburbs, it gave me, like, that balance, gave me that other side of things. I was able to grow with different um, different races and um you know, also get exposed to, like, trees and grass and things that a lot of us take for granted, you know. Um, you know, and being able to really actually play, you know, sports in some grass and not just on the street. And, um, you know, it was it was the best of both worlds. Your mother sent you to a private Catholic boys' high school. Did you want to yeah. go to that school? Oh, no, I wanted to go where the girls were at. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But, but but she knew that that would um when just when I was a child I always had loved women just growing up with women but you know she knew that that was probably gonna be a big distraction for me my whole life I went to private school and Catholic schools I, I was an altar boy you know before you know I went to high school and stuff like that so um I was kind of used to the nuns and, and um and the priests and everything and just going to school with that 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 type of you know strictness. So I wasn't worried about that, but I at least thought that when I got to high school, I was going to get to be around some girls, but um, that didn't happen. So um, by the time I got to Howard and I was at Howard University and I was finally around some young ladies, I was extremely happy. Um, you dropped out of Howard University to be an intern at Uptown Records, and you became a vice president in your early 20s. How did you know you wanted to be in the music industry? Oh, I was... Um, you know, I was looking at like the the there was two people from that would be in the neighborhoods that that really were the guys we would look up to, and that was either the guy, the street hustler, or um, you know, the up and coming like rap star. And so um, I, I I felt like I, my I wanted to be a football player. Uh, I have to back you up a little bit. I wanted to be a football player, but I broke my leg. So then, by default. Um, then I wanted to become like a businessman or, you know, I had a dream to be, you know, um, you know, in the music business, um, as, as an artist or just in the business. And, you know, I would go, I would be casted for music videos cause I was a good dancer and they would come into the clubs and they would just come get you out of the clubs and offer you, a, um, a chance to be in a music video. And I used to get chosen a lot, and I used to always see um, the recording artist, but then I would see this other guy that looked like he had, you know, more power and more respect and more money than the than the recording artist, and that was, like, the um, owner of the label or the music mogul executive. And so I was like, I wanted, I wanted to do that. And so that's what I chose. A lot of people chose at first to become a recording artist. I chose first. I was like, if I could become... Um, that guy that, that's there that the that the music artist is asking the questions of, then you know my chances to finally one day be on the stage. I think my chances would be better going that route first. How does being on stage on Broadway compare to being on stage in front of a very enthusiastic hip hop audience? <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's it's just totally different. It's just um, you know acting. And, um, you know, being a, a musical artist, um, there they, they are some similarities, but to be honest, they're, like, they're totally different, um, you know, and, and the two stages are totally different. Um, 
you know, at one place. And even though there are times as musical artists we try to bring, you know, a live theater feel to our concerts, um, it's, it's nothing like, um, you know, performing on stage on Broadway for, you know, two and a half, three hours, and you can almost hear a pin drop in the audience, so you can hear every breath that they take. And, um, you know... Um, you know, performing in front of like, you know, in Wembley Stadium. Because I, I just don't perform just in front of hip-hop audiences. I also perform like in front of whether it's a rock audience or when I did the Princess Diana concert at Wembley Stadium, that's like, you know, 60,000 people. Um, it's another level of just um, impromptu type of freedom and, um, you know, connection with the crowd of really trying to get them engage the whole time you're trying to like pull them in closer and closer and closer to you so you have this eruption and so in a sense it is the same thing but it's just different so i don't i don't think i answered that question the best way but it's the it's the best way to answer the question when you're on stage on broadway uh you're in character you're playing somebody else when you're on stage in concert do you feel like you're playing somebody else there too or do you feel like you're yourself on stage um, you know, I mean, I'm more of myself. I'm not playing like a total different person. Yeah, I mean, a lot of me is on the stage, you know. Um, but there's like maybe twenty percent that is like just the character that you turn off, you know, when you get off the stage. But a lot of what makes you special if you're a great performer on the musical stage is if if you if you're able to bring yourself to that, and there's something about yourself that's different than all other performers. You know, you have all these different names that you've used for different things. You know, you're Sean Combs, you're Puff Daddy, you've been P. Diddy. Um, mm. And so I'm wondering, like, if, if Puff Daddy or P. Diddy has, like, <laughs> a different personality than Sean yeah. Combs, if you see it as, yeah, like, it a does. character in a way. Yeah, it does. It does. They all, I think we as human beings, we have different sides to ourselves. And I, I just named all those different sides. It, it wasn't, you know, that I was... And it was something that with the name thing, it was just like, it's just having fun. It's not... A lot of people ask the question, it's not a serious thing. Like, so I answered to any of my five names. So it's not to confuse you. But, um, yeah, it's definitely different sides of my personality. Now, your, your first hit under your own name was um, about your friend Biggie Smalls, who was gunned down a few feet away from you in 1997. Um, it was a kind of goodbye to him. You were you were so close. Um, I I don't want to get too personal here, but what impact did his murder have on your life? The reality of violence uh, in your world like that. Somebody you were so close to being shot in front of you. Yeah. Um. You know, I lost my father that way, and then you know, losing him. You know, one of my best friends, and then. After that, I lost two more of my best friends, um, all to the same the same way. They they were all shot and killed. Um, it's it's a tragedy that, to be honest, this is something that you know, growing up in the inner city, it's almost like you're prepared for it. It's almost strange when you have a friend um, who's a, a black male um, die of like cancer or something. It's almost normal when you hear when you get the call or you witness somebody or a friend of yours gets shot and killed and um it was just as devastating um no matter what it is to lose somebody that you love but you know the the tragedy is that it's almost like a lot of us depends on where we grow up it's like we're prepared um for things like that and that's something 
that I feel has to change in this world. You know, some people say rap glorifies violence or glorified violence back in the 80s and 90s, you know, particularly, and that that and that rap made violence seem like the authentic way of being African American. And other people say, no, rap just reflected the violence that was out there. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I feel it was a, a reflection. And also I feel like um, at points it definitely was glorified, but it was a true reflection. But, um, you know, then it was, it was like because you couldn't get away from it, okay, well, if I'm in this situation, at least I'm going to be the baddest um, that was ever in this situation. And then there have been times in, in the music it has been glorified. Well, I'd like to play the first hit that you had under your name, and it was an homage to Biggie Smalls and about how much you missed him. It's called I'll Be Missing You. And I'm not sure if it's a sample or just, like, musicians playing the you riff know, it's from... a sample. It's, it's a sample. It's a sample. Okay. It's a, a sting. From the police, uh, uh, every breath you take. Yes. Um, so, so let's hear it. This is uh, my guest, Sean Combs, and you recorded this under Puff Daddy, right? Yeah. Okay, here it is. <laughs> Seems like yesterday we used to rock the show. I laced the track, you locked the flow. So far from hanging on the block to dope. Notorious, they got to know that. Life ain't always what it seemed to be. Words can't express what you mean to me. Even though you're gone, we still a team. Through your family, I'll fulfill your dreams. In the future, can't wait to see. If you open up the gates for me, reminisce sometime. The night they took my friend. Try to black it out, but it plays again. When it's real, feeling's hard to conceal. Can't imagine all the pain I feel. Give anything to hear half your breath. I know you're still living your life after death. My guest is Sean Combs, Puff Daddy, and that was his first hit. Um, a shout-out to his late friend, Biggie Smalls. Um, so, you know, in addition to music and acting, you also have your fashion company, uh, Sean John, and your, your, your label. Um, and you know, I read that your grandmother was a seamstress. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That My grandmother, she was a neighborhood seamstress. And so when I was growing up, I didn't realize that, that that's one of the ways I was going to get kind of my, my preparation to become a designer. Um, but, you know, I used to, um, you know, assist her in the house, um, you know, cut the patterns and, you know, help with the help, um, you know, press things and get things to be ready to be delivered. And, you know, it gave me a sense of understanding detail and fit on a garment. And I didn't realize that at that time that, you know, it would come to some use as I got older. You know, it's interesting. I think, you know, like some some boys and, and young teenagers would think of that as being too feminine, you know, anything associated yeah. with sewing. Mm-hmm. But that, obviously that didn't bother you. Yeah, no, it didn't bother me. I've always been comfortable who I was and, you know, and nah, no, I, it was cool with me. Was my mother, she was making me take guitar lessons and she tried to get me in some ballet classes and and tap dance, so I had to get over the whole worrying about if something was feminine early, you know, with my mother. She wanted to make sure I was well-rounded, so I got past that early. Did you take tap or ballet? 
Yeah, I took tap and, and ballet for like two days. <laughs> <laughs> but you ended up being a dancer. Yes, yeah. I ended up doing tap, tap dancing. But the ballet was just a little too hard for me. I'm not really that flexible neither. <laughs> so, so with your grandmother, did you actually learn things that you can use as a designer now? Or as, yeah, you know, yes, definitely. Uh, um, she, she taught me about fit, and she taught me about attention to detail, um, just being there with her, with her. You know, the way she was a perfectionist about making sure every garment was perfect. Did she make clothes for you? Um, yes, she made all my, all my clothes on Easter Sunday was made by my, my grandmother. Now, the great thing about having a relative make clothes for you is that you're going to have something that's unique. The not-so-great thing is if you want to look like everybody else, you won't. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you uh, want to buy, like, whatever the popular brand is, yeah. it isn't your grandmother's brand. Yeah, but, I mean, I think that, that separates the, the leaders from the followers, and I always wanted to um, be a trendsetter, so I always wanted to wear something that nobody could get. I always wanted a one-of-a-kind piece from when I was, like, six years old, so. Can you describe one of the greatest things she made you? Um, yeah, she had made me, it was like a, a, it was a navy blue suit with gold buttons. It was a three-piece suit. And, I, you know, back in those days, like the gold buttons used to have the accents. And um, so, yeah, I remember that. That was for Easter. That was one Easter Sunday. Well, just one last question. Um, how much sleep do you get a night? I would say like five hours, four hours. <laughs> Can you run on that? I mean, do you have an, do you have insomnia, or are you just too busy to sleep? Yeah, no, I haven't. I have insomnia. That you know. But, and you so you put when you can't sleep. You no, put I don't. That to I use? don't have insomnia. You don't have like insomnia. I, I, okay. I got no. I do, but I got you. Got to watch what you say. So I don't. Ha- I don't have insomnia. <laughs> I don't want to put that out on that. I'm going to change that up. I don't have it anymore. I just got cured today. <laughs> <laughs> hey, congratulations! <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you very much. I don't have insomnia anymore tonight. I'm going to sleep great. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sean Diddy Combs spoke to Terry Gross in 2008. Let's close with the biggie song, Mo Money, Mo Problems. It was produced by Sean Diddy Combs and Diddy Raps on the track. The song is built on a sample of Diana Ross's 1980 disco anthem, I'm Coming Out. Tell me who rock, who sell out in the stores? You tell me who flop, who cop the blue drop, who jewels got box, who's mostly Gucci down to the blue drop. The same old pimp, mace, you know ain't nothing changed but my limp. Can't stop till I see my name on a blimp. Guarantee me it sells for the level up. You don't believe in Harlem World? Double up. We don't play around, it's a bet, lay it down. Didn't know me 91, bet they know me now. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorak, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krinzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Nyakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices. All ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts.